Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Okay, we're very pleased this afternoon as uh, the next installment of our Thrive at 20 podcast series to be joined by Mike Cluche. Uh, Mike, you're in Oakville, Ontario this morning or this afternoon, right? I'm in Burlington. Oh, you're in Burlington. You know, the the cities really blur when you're driving down the highway. (laughs) It sure is. Boy, the, the city has changed a lot, right, since you and I moved to southern Ontario years ago. It was a uh, uh, sort of a plain, uh, waspy, boring little city of maybe a million and a half, two million people when I moved to Toronto in the late 80s. And when I came back from the States in about 1999, I couldn't believe how much tr- uh, Toronto had changed, mostly for the better. But I don't know where the infrastructure went. Uh, I think they were always putting that off. And now we're, we got the worst traffic in North America, as I understand it. And I used to live in LA and I have to say, I, I agree with that conclusion. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I haven't been to LA in a while, but I, the last time I was there, it was uh, a nightmare, but it didn't seem any worse than Toronto. So there was a time <laughs> when you used to go to LA and think, how do people live like this? And, yeah. and now I know how they live like this. They take the go train. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm a happy subscriber to the Go Train. Uh, so now I live on the other side of the lake from you. I'm out in Port Hope, which is probably equidistance east, as you are west. Right. But, uh, we've we've learned to manage our our time and our life around those nice communities. So good on you. Well, listen, yeah. Mike, I'm I'm really excited about having a chance to talk to you on the podcast because your name comes up so often in my work. In fact, this morning it came up. I have a group of guys that get together every Friday morning to talk about our our lives in sort of a broad way. We talk about business and personal, spiritual, mental stuff. And the topic this morning was, how do you know someone's a good leader? What are the sort of markers of success? And someone made the valid point that the ultimate measure is not what they produce themselves, but can they encourage other folks to be the bigger versions of themselves and sort of to put it plainly, do they create more leaders? And one of the things I know to be true when I'm around the industry in Canada and the U S for that matter, but certainly in Canada is I look around the room at something like the national pharma Congress every October or November. And half of the people in the room are Mike Cloutier proteges. So that's a hell of a success measure. You must be very proud of that. I'm extremely proud of that, of the fact that there have been a number of people that I've had the pleasure of working with. And I and I really do say with because as leaders, you know, we or I at least personally was reminded that, you know, it is a honor and a privilege to lead teams, organizations, whatever it might be, and that we really uh, don't achieve anything unless we do that together. Uh, probably a lot of that comes from playing sports or being involved in a family where sports became an influence in my life and seeing what leadership looked like in in those environments and then much later in business and we can talk a little bit about that later but um i never i don't and, and i appreciate the compliment um because i i took a lot of time and effort with people to help them be um the best that they what they wanted to be like their vision of what they would like to be and we sat and we talked about it and 
that's kind of the way I was raised very early on in the business world. I was blessed to work for some amazing leaders who really, um, I don't know if it wasn't as popular back then. I mean, cause this goes back, you know, over 45 years, but you know, it seemed to me that there weren't as many business publications about leadership or there wasn't as great a conversation about leadership or maybe I wasn't paying attention to it as much back then, but, you know, 20 years in, it just seemed like you couldn't turn around without there being something new to read about or, or something new to see or some speaker to go watch that was yeah. about leadership. So I don't know when it turned. And I, I just know for me that I was lucky enough to have that right from the jump with some really amazing people. Yeah. You, you started at Searle, is that right, Mike? When you got out of Sheraton College, you immediately started as a rep, didn't you? I well, I actually went into um, selling safety equipment in in industrial sales for two years, and I ultimately ended up in pharma uh, two years after I started. So in 1979, I graduated. In 1981, I came into pharma with Searle, and I was that was you know I I don't think I could say there was a greater blessing in my life work-wise than than joining that organization there was something very special about that company and it and it grew over time and a lot of us who work there are still very close friends and we have a bit of a, a romantic uh, view of the past it's almost like Camelot in a way <laughs> but the truth of it is that um, you mentioned some people that you know who worked with me in the past and a large number of those folks originated at Searle um, because I, God, we were only about 285 people and I swear that 270 went on to be great leaders. <laughs> it really wow. was this remarkable experience. I had nowhere a little incubator. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was the people at the top. Um, and, and we took, well, they took, I should say, because I didn't, I wasn't a leader until about, you know, seven, eight years in, in terms of positional leadership. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other conversation. But uh, by the time I got to the, the early days of being around the leadership group of about say 40, 50 individuals from, you know, the entry level leaders to the very top at the, you know, the president level, um, there were people who cared deeply about leadership and were speaking about leadership and practiced it. And uh, at least a view of it that turned out to be something pretty special and remarkable as, as it turned out, because we certainly did churn out a lot of people who are, um, I think that the industry looks at as being some of the very best leaders. So, you know, and that's from their peers, right? Yeah. And you're right. It wasn't, my experience either I was a few years behind you, but I also felt like as I was knocking around Allergan, that Searle Allergan, a couple of the other companies seemed like positive outliers because I go to industry meetings, talk to my chums, and there was this tradition, I suppose, the industry had gone through in, in, in much of its first wave post-war that they recruited many of the leaders from military, and that has its advantages. There's a, certainly a discipline, there's a goal orientation, there's a rigor. But it got a little bit, I don't know how I would describe it other than it got a little rigid and it was very top down in, in terms of a lot of mentality. And there was sort of this, you know, do your job, stay in your lane. 
I will tell you, like I, I was talking about, you know, development in my early part of my career. And I remember as I compared notes with a couple of my friends who were the same age in a pub one night, they said, yeah, they just tell us where you're going next, who you're going to be working for, what you're going to learn, what course you're going to take and, and what the outcomes will be. And this is where you go and go after that. And then you'll go over here and nobody asks us what we want. And we were having a good laugh about it, but there was a lot of truth to that. That was the sort of high control, uh, top-down sort of a hierarchical approach. And then to your point, about 15, 20 years later, thank goodness, uh, the the industry, I think, grew up in a sense and was much more encouraging of the kind of environment that you walked in, into at Searle, where people actually just naturally recognize that you needed to be in charge of your own career, your own professional development, and have a lot of ownership. And their job was to nurture that, steward that, not to tell you what to do next. And uh, so it sounds like you and I luckily uh, stepped into great work environments, you know, right out of the gate as, as our entree into the life science industry. And I suppose you both benefited as a result. Mm-hmm. I think there, you know, my, my best recollection would be that there was uh, some level of authoritarianism and this kind of authoritative view of leadership. When I, when I very first got in um, at the most, senior level at that we had like a president a gm and then a director level and then there were managers and then there were you know individual contributors and there was no question that uh the president and the general manager were from a different era and had more of a view of that but the director level and senior management level that i was most exposed to um, we're already migrating away from that. It was a more inclusive uh, type of management style. Uh, people really did ask your opinion and did listen to the answer and did, you know, implement ideas once in a while that came from, you know, the far reaches of the organization as opposed from the top. So, and then uh, there was another thing I observed that I thought was quite interesting that two of the strongest voices around the table when I was invited in to present to the senior leadership team were women at Searle. Uh, There was a regulatory person named Ann Tallman who was just a rock star and continued to be in and left the organization, started her own business, did an amazing uh, job and was hugely successful, you know, sold that, started another one, was hugely successful again, sold that and, I'm not quite sure what she's doing today. And it was really interesting example for me to see, you know, um, I think I was pretty open to the idea that there were a lot of different ways to lead, but it was pretty impressive at the time, which I, you know, I thought a lot of the, or the a lot of the industry at that time was very male dominated. And oh, here was a company ever. that had, they had two very strong women leaders. Um, the other was a lady by the day, name of Dagmar Stadola, but um, Anyway, they were powerful. Uh, held that's and they, another. And were, it's another it clear indicator, Mike, that you were in a progressive environment, as you say, from mm-hmm. the director level at least, right? And it just probably continued in that vein. And you guys had such a great run. Not just were you financially successful, and the organization continued to grow and have a bigger footprint in Canada. But to your earlier point, those folks that went on to other places just ended up becoming executive leaders, not only just in Canada, but globally. 
So you're doing a lot of things right over there in that little incubator of talent. Um, I had that same observation too. I remember I come from a big family. I have four sisters and all professionals and have all had great careers. And one of the first times that I was back home explaining them, you know, my new job, um, I think we were at a wedding or something. And it, it was my observation that it still seemed a little bit of an old boys club above my level. There weren't a lot of women in leadership roles at that time. Luckily, a lot of my peers, it seemed like at the at the field level, there was a, a pretty broader, there was a lot of broader thinking about talent and recruitment. And so a lot of the folks that started with me in the mid eighties, uh, there was, there was more diversity of male, female, as well as ethnic diversity and cultural backgrounds, thank goodness. But it took a long time for our industry. I remember even having this observation at the back of one of the big Congress meetings, and this can't be more than 10 or 15 years ago, thinking, you know, we still have a ways to go. Now, if you look at the Congress meetings that we've seen in the last five years, thank goodness it's finally happened where at least half of the speakers are not white men, you know, which is terrific, Mm -hmm. but it took a while. And I'm not sure what the prescription is to get it to go even further to create more cultural diversity, but it's, I suppose it'll come with time because, you know, Toronto being one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world, we now have a very rich environment in which to recruit talented folks from every corner of the planet that have either got their education here or elsewhere, but decided to make Toronto a home. But it's still, as an industry, something that has a ways to go. Do you agree with that, Mike? Do you think there's still a, an opportunity there? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's just in, in pharma biotech. Uh, I think some, as you said, I think, and again, it's um, <laughs> it may seem odd for a, you know, an, a, an old, you know, white male to be commenting on this in a way. I mean, I can only speak to my observations that I do think a lot of great progress has been made. Uh, um, I, I perceive that, I think to really understand it and to really have a sense of what is the reality today, it would be better to have an opinion of, of, you know, women who have reached a a higher level of achievement and women who are struggling to break through in organizations where it's still difficult. That would be a great conversation to be, to hear about and to understand what more needs to be done. But I do I think there were a lot of, I, I can say honestly that there were a great many periods throughout my career and particularly at times when I had the ability to, to influence or shape things where we spent a lot of time and effort making sure that we were trying to create a better, more diverse um, organization and to create opportunity that was more in line with you know, the population of our whole organization yeah. and the people to... and the people we're serving. Right. It's uh, yeah. Even when I was you know. a rep, I, uh, the, the medical schools in Canada were graduating as many females as they were males. Now it's more female than male in many of the specialties. And it took a while for the industry to catch up to that. So it's good to see the progress, but to your point, there's a long way to go. And I'm glad to see pop-up organizations that are creating better empathy and understanding. There's a women in pharma leadership group that gathers regularly. And I hear and see outputs from them on LinkedIn and 
different publications. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great that that trend is, is strong. I don't think it's all the way there, but it's good to see that in, in the time that I've been in the industry, that there's been as much progress as there has, but boy, it seems like there's still a ways to go. <laughs> um, yeah. So Mike, yeah. Mike, one of the things I want to take advantage of is I remember when, when I was getting started and co- comparing notes with my, my friends, we would, we would be told, well, here's a path that you can look ahead of you and see the women and men who are ahead of you, what they've done and some things you should think about. And oftentimes they describe the path that looks a heck of a lot like your LinkedIn (laughs) profile. It's like, okay, get into sales, learn the customer, learn the markets, learn how this business works, understand how important direct selling is to the marketing mix. It's 60 to 90%, depending on the company, where the money gets spent, where the relationships uh, get developed, where the value gets created by the industry with our healthcare customers, because you can't replace that learning. It'd be like a Procter and Gamble, someone who aspired to be a executive there, not understanding how important advertising is to their business. So it really helped you and I get that foundation that we needed for our careers. And most people in our industry that have a great run, pick up that experience somewhere along the line. But yeah, yours is such a classic this is what it should look like, you know, be, be willing to take on growth assignments, managing people, managing strategy, uh, developing culture, developing teams. Um, you had such a great commercial run, which I guess culminated with you running AstraZeneca, uh, both in Canada and then with some global opportunity. What was the, what was it like for you as you went through that journey? How did it shape you, Mike? Like what did, what have you taken with you in that journey? And what were some of the things that you picked up along the way, either through great mentorship or just making mistakes, I suppose, but what, what, what highlights come to mind as we talk about that journey? Yeah. Um, well, we'd need a three hour podcast to talk <laughs> about my mistakes, so we won't go there. Although that's where a lot of great learning happens. There's no question. Um, and you're right in that uh, there is a very distinct commercial pathway to success in our industry, at least traditionally there has been. There are other pathways and other people have gone down those, but the one that I was in and I chose another have is commercial. I do feel so strong about the you know, the time I spent face to face with with our customers, our physician customers, our our uh pharmacy customers in the early days and how fundamental that was to my beliefs around what was important to our business. I think that as time evolved, even the time I spent with our payer customers, you know, whether it be third-party private or the government, um, like, uh, you know, all of those things were really, really fundamental to me. They, they left a very lasting impression. And I think that core understanding of what their needs were was really important. But I think where it really all shifted for me was when I finally got exposure to the patient groups and started to really understand the implications of our medication mm-hmm. and our innovations to them um, as the ultimate users of our products, the patients, the caregivers who supported the people who were patients. Like when that, when I started having more and more exposure to that, I think it all really shifted dramatically for me. And it, and that you know, for lack of a better term, customer orientation across all the varied customers was really, really important. But at the same time, I also remember 
a conversation internally that we were having about uh, our people coming first and how important it was for our employees, you know, for us to respect the value of our employees, of all of us being, you know, the team, the team, the you know, the, the entire team in support of the needs of those patient caregivers or healthcare professionals or whoever. And that the blending of an equal, almost an, almost a 50-50 respect and and the effort to make sure that we were working as hard to be the best we could be in the marketplace and working as hard as we could to be the best we could be within our own organization in service of our people, in service of ourselves. And that, you know, I think that was what really became the foundation of, you know, my leadership style over time. Well, and and what it what it speaks to too, Mike, is that most of our listeners know that as you accomplished so many things in the commercial stream you were in, and you know it resulted in what we all would would say would be kind of the ultimate destination of those efforts from a career point of view, and that's general management and responsibility for the whole country you made somewhat of an unusual pivot at sort of the pinnacle of that commercial run to get into HR leadership. And I want to understand what was the main driver for you? Why was that something that you were so enthusiastic? Because I remember it is actually one of the first times you and I met as I had a chance to connect with you when you were running AstraZeneca. And you told me at that time, this was, this is a change you were making. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's, I don't think I've ever heard that before. And at the time, I had no idea who you were. I just heard your reputation. And so many people talk so uh, fondly and po- uh, positively about your leadership style. But that was an unusual move. But you mm-hmm. seemed to flourish from everything I was seeing and hearing from you after the fact when you went into that global HR role. But what was the motivation for you personally to sort of cash in all your chips on the commercial side and, and lean into human, re- human resource development? Yeah. So, you know, really there were, there were two huge drivers in that. Um, the, the first was that I was trying to envision myself um, towards the latter part of my career and sort of how would I exit, you know, what would, what would I look like, you know, when I, you know, retired or whatever that is, right? Like, what would it look so? And I was blessed to go through a, a leadership development program when Searle was a part of the Monsanto Group, and it would, would and and it was amazing all the different elements of it. But the thing, one of the things that stuck with me that was so powerful, Rob, was we did an exercise. It, it will sound a little bit morbid at first, but it wasn't. But it, we did an exercise where we started with writing our obituary. And then, and we had a discussion about that, which was fascinating in itself. Then we did a, a, we looked at our career from the last job we had before, you know, that obituary would have occurred. And it didn't matter how many years you weren't working anymore between. So let's just go to the corporate part. So what was the last job you had before you weren't working anymore? And then what was the job before that one? And then what was the job before that one? Like we reverse engineered our careers to where we were standing in the, in the present. Okay. Now for me, I think I was about 40. I might even have been a little younger. Anyways, exact dates don't matter in so much as I was still kind of mid career, you know, and, 
And so going through that exercise, uh, when I reflected back on it, it was like, man, I just don't see myself ending up with a, you know, with 40 years in pharma and and maybe the last 20 being in the same job as a president or something like it. That can't possibly be it. And and I thought about what I loved. And what I loved was the people part. I loved the leadership development. I love organizational design, organizational development. I like the strategic people plan as much as I like the strategic business plan. And I and I really envisioned myself as being a consultant that would be consulting more down that road than I would about strategic leadership of a business. And so I I had to find a way to further develop my skill set. Um, and I didn't want to reinvent myself by education and, you know, just, you know, kind of leaving the corporate world and going back to school and 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 going through the traditional, you know, methodologies of education in order to get designations and and to be able to demonstrate to the world that I was learned in the field of human resources. So I thought, hey, I wonder if I could find a role where I could take a crash course in strategic people leadership and management. And AZ, um, where you know, I think ultimately, like they were open-minded enough to see the value of having a commercial person at the senior leadership table of HR. There might be some value in a commercial person listening to what people are strategizing about people with an eye on how the business is, a view to the customer, a view to the people who are driving the business to get to the customer, who actually was at the table, um, you know, maybe influencing or being a part of growing and developing our, our human resource strategy for the company. And I got to do that. So I spent two years in that environment and I learned a ton. And and I thought that that would lead me to the path of of being, you know, what all, you know, pharmaceutical executives do one day. And that's become consultants, you know, because yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's how we end our lives. And uh, so that was the, that was the reason that I chose to do it. I had a passion for it. I, I was I, I thought I was pretty good at it. And I was getting feedback that said I had a a bit of a capability in it. And so why not try it on at a higher level? And so that's why I did it. Also, it was an opportunity to get international experience at a time where, from a family perspective, although it was shocking to the system, so to speak, back home, that I would be, you know, primarily living in the UK, which turned out not to be the case, because I really was on this rotational process of going through the UK, Sweden, and the US, and then back home, and I would have a week so one week out of four, I was living in Canada with my family. Now, now, my wife and my two kids, both of my kids were away at university. So it really was just at the time that I had my aunts, you know, being back home. And, and she was unbelievably, you know, supportive through all of that. But I learned mm-hmm. so much and I got, you know, so I sort of got a master's. I, 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 actually, that's overstating it. I got a No, no, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I was just thinking that, Mike, that. It would be like an MBA specifically focused on human development. Uh, yeah, they they were so gracious to to acknowledge the basics that I understood and to let me grow rapidly in their environment. Um, and it wasn't like I hadn't been exposed to these things because I was I had been you know, the general manager, president, or CEO of three companies at that point. So I had an HR professional and an organization reporting into me through that professional. And I was blessed with outstanding HR people in my career. I mean, absolute 
superstar people that I worked with. I absolutely was blessed with that. So, you know, I saw HR as a strategic part of the business as opposed to, you know, those people who get in your way. I guess that some people see it. I, I didn't, I saw, you know, my CFO, my HR lead and myself, we were like the three people. I wore the rug out between our offices, you know, consulting with my CFO and consulting with my HR lead, whatever their title was. So I I was kind of, I, I was kind of already in a mindset, but I got to go to a different level. So that's, that's what it was about. It was about, you know, trying to set myself up for the future that I thought might be my future. It it ultimately turned out that I didn't go that way. I tried it. I wasn't overly successful at it. And I went back into the traditional commercial roles, you know, in, in, in traditional leadership as GM or, or CEO president of a bunch of other companies after that. Um, But I did give it a good go and I did love part of it. I'll tell you what I was frustrated with was that I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around the people who I was trying to bring that leadership development to who genuinely wanted to improve. And I love those clients. I love those opportunities. And some of the people that I had a chance to work with, have, you know, um, it's been very rewarding to see their careers continue to evolve and to see them acknowledge as really great leaders. But what frustrated me at the time, Rob, to be honest, was how many people I was, you know, asked to engage with who really were ticking a box and they didn't genuinely want to change, or at least they didn't want to change in a way that I that that I believe that their leadership was asking them to do. And so it became a process. Yeah, and you were pushing makes... water up. Well, no, and, and then you were pushing water uphill, right? And it's yeah. interesting because one of our previous guests, Todd Wood, described his philosophy towards talent development. He said almost exactly what you just said, Mike. He learned that the most efficacious approach is when, as the person trying to do what you were trying to do, and now me and my work for the past 20 years, we're clearly sitting in the, in the navigator chair or the passenger seat, if you will. And we don't touch the wheel. We don't own the journey. We're stewarding the journey and they have to be able to, the most important question I've learned to ask people. And it's funny. I was just with a young leader uh, before this conversation started and I loved her answers. I said, well, if we were sitting together a year from now, if we bumped into each other at Pearson airport in Toronto and you said to me, Oh, Rob, I've had such a fantastic year. 2024 has been the best and I've learned so much. How would you finish the sentence? What what do you want to be able to describe to me that's better and different than today? And then I listen very carefully to the answer. Because if I don't sense the fire in their belly, the motivation to truly grow, then I'm kind of wasting my time. You know what I'm saying? Like I can't do it for them. Uh, but if they have a great answer, it's a fun ride. And I, I'm sure you had the same experiences as you were engaging in that kind of effort post AstraZeneca that the most fun and the most impact you could make is when you had someone who said, yeah, I, I, as a corporate athlete, I want to grow and I have a clear picture of what that looks like. I just need someone to help guide me in that direction. Yeah. I mean, so in that percentage of occasions and there were, you know, many, but ultimately not enough to keep me in it. And I went back to something I was just more comfortable with than I think I realized I enjoyed a lot. But in those moments of those situations where 
where it, it connected and it clicked. And, you know, I would, I would be sitting with someone who I was working with and it was really the beauty. What I loved about it was all their ideas. My job, I felt like my job was just to help them bring it together to an action plan that then we had some mutual accountability for, I was really just checking in with them about what they were doing with their plan that they created and they were implementing. And when they would give me feedback about where there were successes were coming from, but yeah, there's no question that it was like, I honestly felt like I could float. I was so happy and buoyed by it and felt so proud for them. Um, I loved the moment, but I mean, it was really about them and seeing that it was like, Oh my God, there's nothing. It's almost like, it's not the same, but it's pretty darn close to when your kids achieve something and they tell you about it and you're like beaming beyond like there's just no other feeling because you're so yeah. happy for them and so proud of them and I felt that I just didn't I wasn't ultimately feeling it enough to keep me in that part of the game so I actually then wanted to go back to you know I you know went back to to running organizations where I I could have an influence at a level I just was feeling more rewarded by so it was a personal thing and it was a and and uh you know i loved it um but yeah in the moment when the magic happened it was something like it was like nothing else i'd ever experienced yeah but it's interesting that your original thinking post astrazeneca was to be squarely in the field of uh human development and, and use that as a sort of a business design but post astrazeneca you could easily make the argument mike that you got exactly what you were hoping for because you got chance through PTC and Tribune and mm. uh, ever sat in a whole bunch of cool little entrepreneurial plays to continue to influence young leaders who now I run into them uh, at various meetings or they're my clients and they'll fondly recall how much of an impact you had on them as they enjoyed being part of these entrepreneurial and smaller companies that you were growing from the ground up. And that's what they talk about. They talk about when I asked them, well, why was that such a hallmark of their own path, their own experiences to this point? They talk about how much they learned in the environment you created for them. Well, I mean, that's it's you know, it's absolutely wonderful to hear that. And I and I, you know, the, a, a number of people that I had the pleasure of working with and leading organizations, you know, we became very good friends and some of them are still some of my very closest friends today people whose our lives became intertwined in a way that transcended the business and now we are personal friends and closest of personal friends with some individuals and i learn so much from them today like when i you know this morning i had coffee breakfast with an individual and I'm not going to name names today of people because I'll forget to talk about somebody um, and then I'll feel horrible. And because it's a public thing, (laughs) I I don't, I'd hate to miss a story about someone who I care deeply about and love, but I had breakfast this morning, someone who I do care deeply about and, and, and who, who I was leading at one point. And to be perfectly honest, I think in the last, 10 years, I've learned so much more from them. Uh, she's taught me way more than I ever taught her. And in the last 10 years, I've, I believe that I'm on a path to being a way better person 
as a result of those interactions. And to and when I drive away from those breakfasts or coffees with people like her or others that I get to do that with from time to time, I I'm re-energized and and reinvigorated in a way that I can't even describe because it's like now I'm getting it, it's flipped around and I'm getting so much from them. Like just yeah. it's incredible and I love it. And uh and I'm 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 trying to figure out ways into to to turn that back into something, you know, to to pay that forward yet again in a different way. You know, I haven't figured but it I, out. But I yet. think Mike, I think you uh I think you do. And I'll tell you why. To me, it's fairly clear. And I'm so, I'm sure I'm not the only person that would give you this opinion. Uh it's funny that book, that group I was mentioning gets together. Friday mornings and talks about leadership and different things. We're studying a book right now called strength to strength. It's from a guy who was at Harvard and he's dedicated his life to try to understand our journey in corporate lives and beyond. But he describes in the book that no matter what discipline you look at, the subject matter expertise, the peak of your innovative ability happens somewhere between the ages of 20 and 35. I mean, it's, it's sobering to think that your best years are behind you when it comes to that subject matter piece. He's a French horn player. And he said, you know, mm. he, when he got the chair, the number one French horn at the Philadelphia, Philadelphia uh, Philharmonic, he knew that his skills were starting to decline because he had to work twice as hard to keep them up. And it was frustrating to him because that was his thing. Um, and he goes on to describe in the book, how every field suffers the same fate, whether you're a scientist or geologist or whatever it might be. But the encouraging part of the book is that there, in his opinion, and it's not just his opinion, there's plenty of data to support this notion, is that there's a second sort of field of intelligence that kicks in. And it's not fluid intelligence, as he calls it. It's it's more systematic. He calls it um, uh, crystallized intelligence. It's the ability for people who, as they go through their life and experience, get to see how pieces fit together. They see the whole system. They see how they can integrate things from different things that they've been exposed to and help people put the puzzle together in a broader sense. It's why a lot of folks pivot to a a general management approach later in their careers, and they're really good at it. He said it funny enough, he was consulting with a tech company in the West Coast, and they asked him, well, what do you think we should do? We're struggling here. He said, you need to hire some older guys. You're all in your 20s, and that's great. You're in your innovative intelligence peak of your careers, but you might want to hire some older men and women who can bring the broader, crystallized, systemic wisdom to help you guys flourish and see things you can't see. And uh, if you think about your journey, Mike, and the great run you had in the industry, and then the pivot over to the entrepreneurial plays, it, it gave it gives you a chance to really harvest in those areas, right? To bring everything together on behalf of the client you're serving at the time or the organization you're serving at the time, get it up to a certain point and then hand the keys over and move on to the next. And in the process, kind of live out the mandate that you probably found yourself writing in that exercise when you were at Cyril Monsanto, where they asked you to write your obituary and work backwards, right? I remember doing the same exercise with my coach. So I'm very familiar with it and how powerful Mm. it is. So, but here you are, this point in your career, doing exactly that. Maybe not exactly in the way that you thought you might, but to your point, it must be so energizing 
to have that chance to flourish in that second form of intelligence or wisdom uh, that this guy describes in his book. Does that ring true with you? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I, I am going to go, you know me, I'm immediately going to go get the book and take a look at it. So thank you for that. Um, I think that I've had two occasions this week where I was reminded that there's a lot of value um, all along the way. And, you know, uh, it, it, we have, fair, you know, this is a point in time, and I don't know how many times this may have occurred, you know, since the you know, the kind of industrial revolution occurred and, but we have four significant generational groups all in the, all working together right now. If you consider the, the, if the boomers are the, are the uh, oldest, and then there's at least four other groups that are now in the workforce, at least categorically. Um, And if the richness of, of the opinions and insights of the four different ages per se or levels of experience or you know would be incredibly powerful to create solutions as opposed to just one end or the other you know what i'm saying it's like oh yeah so i i think there's i i I do think that there's some value that comes from experience um as a as as data and as input um in the context of all of the data and all of the input the the you know i was at a meeting um i just briefly stepped into one of the companies i've invested in and i, I was i'm on the board of uh they had uh this kind of uh all hands meeting uh where all the employees got together and you know the the i mean there was you know people in their early 20s up to you know the old person like me who's 65 in the room and to and to walk around to different conversations and speak to people you know in the context of it being about this company and the business and what's going on i mean it was just um it was so energizing and i can only imagine how if you channel that how powerful it is right if everybody could take the time to really try to listen for each other to really under like when someone's speaking to say like i need to really understand what you're speaking about because i think there's something i could learn as opposed to trying to formulate the response and answer to what they're saying <laughs> you know really like spend oh, yeah. time to like really consciously listen and understand before you discuss further i mean well and you mentioned that earlier in our how conversation powerful. well yeah and earlier in our conversation you mentioned how powerful it was in your early marketing experience to invest in truly listening to the patient, the families, the caregivers to understand what was, what was it like to be at the end of that therapeutic value chain where companies had invested millions, maybe billions to bring a technology to market, to help them deal with a medical challenge. But if we don't listen to them, we don't listen to their experience. We can miss a big part of the value that they're looking to derive and I had that same experience. Luckily, early in my career, I worked for someone who was a brilliant marketer, but a mess of a person. Like, I had to really watch that I didn't follow his values, but I followed his intelligence because he was a off the charts capable marketer, but he was a someone whose values were so different than what I think is appropriate in the workplace or elsewhere for that matter. But that's something that I did learn from him was. He came from outside the farm industry, and one of the criticisms he had 
which he mentioned quite often in his blunt sort of difficult style was you idiots in pharma don't know what the hell you're doing when it comes to marketing. You, you can get away with a lot of mistakes because your margins are 80% and you don't listen to your customer. You don't invest in the research and you just throw products on the market and you make money and you're happy with that. So his difficult bedside manner aside, he was right. And in fact, it, the power of listening, I'm a natural extrovert, as you know, I'm probably when they, when they measure on the scale, I've done personal assessments where I'm on a nine point scale, I'm a nine. I think I've mellowed a little bit over time, but it really, it made an impression upon me about how important deep listening is to building relationships and building wisdom. And it's, it's been my experience too, Mike, that I serve, you know, multiple clients a year to try to spend most of my available energy, just asking smart questions and listening carefully to what people are saying and making sure other people are listening to what those folks are saying. And there's so much power in that. In fact, it's given me a lot more appreciation for the power of the introverted leader. I think it's one of the most undervalued aspects of truly powerful leaders who are having quiet success and let the record speak for themselves. But they're just tremendous listeners. They've got uh, empathy. Is empathy is their long suit? Mm. Yeah, um, that's really the, empathy is so powerful, and 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 I, I believe in you know my personal perspective, it's just, it's so important. My you know my journey um, in listening is never ending. I I really I have to work at it. I go in and out of periods where I'm a great active listener. And then when I'm a terrible listener, and I, I know it's something that I just can't, I always have to be conscious of, and I always have to be um, working at, I, I don't know why, but I do. And so I, I do try and I, when I fail, I feel terrible, <laughs> you know, um, but I think that you you said something about empathy and, you know, being, you know, really honestly caring, being genuine about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fundamentally important. And I think it seems to be even growing in importance. At least it seems to be, if I read, I get to read a few still, I, um, uh, you know, the, the feedback from employee surveys about companies in corporate environments and stuff. And I, I get the sense that the premium that was placed on, on, you know, empathy, uh, in the past, you know, was growing, but it seems to be even greater today. If I'm, you know, sort of at least what I'm seeing and observing, and there seems to be a lot of conversations about it. So it's a powerful, it's a powerful part of of leadership for sure. Well, especially when thankfully our industry and hopefully most others have moved away from the old command and control model mm. <laughs> to the more flatter organization of empowering people to do their best work and doing the kind of things Mike that you did as you led folks, like you say, your harvest came from watching them reach more and more of their potential, right? That, that I'm sure that caused a few happy dances in your offices. Like it does for me. I can really relate to when you said that I had a call just this week from a young lady in Montreal who was recognized globally by her life science employer for a very innovative approach to measuring the impact of her medical affairs team is having on the education of 
physicians and they're going to use that approach globally. And I was so happy for it. Like it just made my day. I think mm-hmm. I came out of the office and high five my cat. Like, you know, it's, like <laughs> it's just like, woo. Uh, but, but that's why I think empathy is becoming more and more of a core capability of leaders is you can't lead today. If, if you're supposedly having all the answers, it's the job of the leader to in this environment, to pull that out of people and to encourage them and to support them and to push them a little bit, prod them a little bit to grow and take chances and, and listen to themselves and listen to the wisdom of the people who are benefiting from their product or technology. I think that's been a, a bit of big learning for me in my career. And I continue to benefit from it every day. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm, I want to end on as we bring our conversation to a close, Mike is with your, I would call you a statesman in the industry, like someone who is a reference point for so many people in the industry. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this question at the end. What advice would you give to people who are maybe in the first half of their life science career and want to have the kind of run that you enjoyed both in their, on the, on the sort of corporate ladder they're on, but also post corporate ladder, because I think it's common as you look across our industry that people have a run, if you want to call it that for maybe 15, 20, 25 years, if they're lucky where they continue to have progressive opportunities, but then there's another 10, 15, 20 years where they want to continue to be impactful. And maybe it's not corporate either by decision or by circumstance. What would your advice be to people who are either in the run or also thinking about post-corporate? Because you've been through both and you're, you've flourished, Mike, in both environments. What would you say to our listeners that might be helpful? Yeah, um, it, it's it's a, it's a it's a big question because I can only speak to the approach that I followed and and I think and then not just that approach, but then my retrospective view of that approach. So. Um, here's how it occurs for me. Um, don't, uh, don't be in a hurry. Really and truly take everything you can from every role you get and immerse yourself in it and understand it. Don't be looking to the next thing while you're in the role you're in. Learn absolutely everything there is and, and understand everything about it. Not just what the job is, but how the job where does that job, where does that role sit? How does it interface? You know, walk around it entirely while you're in it and, and really enjoy it for the time you're in it. Because if you are mobile in your career and if you do want to grow and change and do different things, um, it, it goes by really quick because you'll be on to the next thing and you'll and it's very difficult to remember where you were when you're in the current thing. And then, you know, because then you have to apply that to the next. I didn't, I didn't have a plan to become, you know, the president or CEO or general manager. Like I, I, honest to God, never had that plan. I was blessed enough to, as I was doing a good job for people to tap me on the shoulder and and ask me if I'd ever thought about another job. And then, and I would say, "Hmm, no, I hadn't, but, and they go, well, you know, why don't you try this? And I go, sure. Now, as as things evolved, obviously, when they were tapping me, I was a lot more aware of where I was going with that. But 
And and there was a time that flipped where I did want to then sort of go for the whole thing, and and I did. Um, but I if if I could if I was to go back and do one thing different, I would try to enjoy where I was more, and think less about where I was going, so that I could bring what I learned from where I am to the next thing and share it better. Mm-hmm. That would be that would be my advice. If someone asked me, <laughs> well, I did. So now lots of people get the benefit from your answer, not just me. Well, thanks, Mike. That was beautiful. I really appreciate you spending some time with us here this afternoon. And I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy as much as I did our conversation. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you again soon, wherever that, wherever our paths cross again, whether it's on a golf course or at the hockey rink or wherever we might be or a ball diamond uh, or maybe right. a boardroom somewhere. But Really appreciate your time here on a beautiful Friday afternoon, and I hope to see you soon. Well, thanks, Rob. And I I, I would be remiss if I didn't say how much I've enjoyed uh, getting to know you over the years, and in particular, even more so over the last few years. I have tremendous respect for everything that you've done, and I've seen you in action. Uh, well, not in action, but I've seen the results of your work with people who did report to me, who you wore their you know life coach guidance to them. Um, and I just have tremendous respect for uh, not only what you've done, but what you're doing and uh, and being part of, of this shared celebration of 20 years. So, on, you know, on behalf of everybody who's benefited from that, thank you. And, and thanks for the opportunity to chat today. It's always great to get together. And I'm pleased that we stayed away from a lot of the sports things that we could have bored people to tears with. So congratulations to us. My life partner and wife, Christine will be proud of me that we didn't talk about one sports analogy in an hour. And that's almost (laughs) impossible for you and you and I and Nancy and Christine to imagine. So (laughs) well done. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Take Take good care. care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.